as we enter week 11 of our study of the story and how your story intersects with God's story, the upper story and the lower story, we look at Saul today. Last week we looked at uh, Samuel and the promised child that he was to Hannah, a woman who had been barren and how God had miraculously changed that situation. We saw how throughout scripture we see this idea of God coming to these individual women who are not able to have children and doing something very special and raising up a special uh, man through them. And as Samuel ruled and, and reigned, and in a sense, he was the judge, he was a prophet, he was a priest, but he wasn't a king because the king for Israel was God. It was Yahweh. And God was leading his people. God had led them out of Egypt, and God was now leading them into a, a new national um, entity and identity so that through them, he could bless the world. But as we've seen through our story so far, and as we'll continue to see in the story and in your life and in my life, uh, we as a people tend to be rebellious in nature. And the people continue to throw off what, what God is doing and to look for their own ways, trying to decide for themselves what is good and right. As you heard in the video and as we've seen in the refrain in the book of Judges, the idea that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what Adam and Eve did, what was right in their own eyes. They thought that they were wise enough to determine what was good, but they're not. As uh, Bruce Waltke has, has said, unless you know everything about everything, he put it a little differently, but that's the point, unless you know everything about everything, you're not in any position to know what actually is good because you don't know. And that lack of knowledge prevents you from actually knowing what is ultimately good. So no human being can ultimately know what is the ultimate good. Only someone who is all-knowing, God, can know that. And that's why we have to trust God. We have to listen to God. You don't know what's on the other side of today. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. But God does. And so the goal for you and I is to be in the right place at the right time where God wants us to be because he does know what's coming tomorrow. So as, as the people are in this crisis situation, the Philistines are all around them. And they're about to request something new. And what I want you to remember as, as we go through our, our text today is that the Bible is like a mural that tells a single story. All of these different aspects, all of these characteristics is being put together to tell a single story of God wanting his people in the right place in his presence. And we're going to see that again today. So, from standing tall to sitting small, that's the life of Saul. Now, don't confuse Saul in the Old Testament with Saul in the New Testament, okay? The Saul in the New Testament becomes the Apostle Paul, all right? So we're looking at Saul in the Old Testament, from standing tall to sitting small. Now, it's an interesting thing. The Bible tells us that Saul was uh, head and shoulders above everybody else. He was taller than everybody else. And it's very interesting that even today, if you do a survey of CEOs of the top companies, guess what? They're head and shoulders above everybody else. They're, in general, more than six feet tall. I think 6'3 is close to the average, give or take. Now, not every single one, but that is the average. The majority of top CEOs are tall people. What is it about us? We like tall buildings. Men are always in these, uh, these wars and fights to build the tallest buildings. 
We like tall people. We think they have this leadership capacity. They're tall. They must be a good leader. And, and that's what we see even in uh, Saul. And to give Saul a little bit of credit, Saul could have been a good leader if he had chosen to be submissive, surrendered, and obedient uh, to God. And so in, in this time period of Israel, as uh, Saul is going to become this leader, We've seen this cycle throughout the book of Judges, that the people sin, and then they, they cry out to God. And what, what happens when God hears their cry? He helps them. That's right. He sends a deliverer, someone who is called a judge. And in the book of Samuel, we still continue to see this idea of a judge. In fact, Eli was called a judge. Samuel is called a judge, and the word for judge is, is used related to uh, Saul and others throughout the book of Samuel. In the book of Samuel, if you'll look with me, chapter 8, look right before that at chapter 7 in verse 15, and I think we'll pick up there this morning. Chapter 7, verse 15, it won't be on the screen today. Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. So there you have the, the word judge. That connects us with the time of the judges. And when we looked at judges, I tried to explain to you that the judges get progressively worse in the book of Judges. Samson, one of the most well-known, is one of the worst, if not the worst, judge. He does not care for God's words. He basically disregards all of what God has for him. But God works through him and, and uses him to rout or to whip the Philistines. But the Philistines are still a problem. So Samuel judges Israel throughout his life. Every year he would go on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he would judge Israel at these locations. Then he would return to Ramah because his home was there. So he just goes in this little circuit, okay, round and round and about, okay? He judged Israel, and he had built an altar to the Lord there. Chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, okay, so in between chapter 7, verse 17, and chapter 8, verse 1 is a whole bunch of time. 30, 40 years, okay? He appointed his sons as judges over Israel. That means his sons are grown up. So a whole lot of time has just gone by. His firstborn son's name was Joel, or Joel, and his second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is way down in the south, okay? So they're a little bit away from him. I don't know why they were so far away. Some people speculate that it's because they weren't very good and he was putting them down in a place where they couldn't do quite as much damage, but that's speculation. We don't really know. Okay, Verse 2 or 3 says, However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. Well, a judge is charged with administering justice. So if the judge is not administering justice and he is unjust and unjust, then he's not a very good judge. And he's violating the whole purpose of being a judge. Verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together and they went to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, look, you're old. Your sons do not follow your example. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. Now right here is where we're going to go on a little bit of a turn in Israel's history. Okay, There's going to be a turning point for them. They are now demanding a king like all the other nations. They don't have a king. Up until this point, they haven't had one. They have judges that act like kind of mini kings in a sense, but they don't have the power of a king. All right? God has been their king. 
And they have people that God speaks to. They act as prophets, like Samuel. It says in verse number 6, When they said, Give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand sinful, so he prayed to the Lord. It's a good thing to do, right? When you think something might be sin or you're not sure what to do, you pray. But the Lord told him, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They've not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you they've done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Now, this passage of scripture is a bit confusing. Scholars debate various aspects of it. There's debates as to whether Israel ever should have had a king. Uh, Most scholars come down on the side that uh, God knew they were going to, and it was okay to have one, but it's about their motives. Um, We see here that there is some evidence from what God is saying about what he thinks. Tell Samuel to go ahead. They're going to have a king. But he also says they've rejected me as king. So he's going to give them what they want. But at the same time, he's saying they've rejected me, the true king. So there's a sense here where you need to be careful of what you ask for. Okay, God may give you what you ask for, and it may not actually be what's best for you. So if you ask for something and God doesn't give it to you, you might actually consider that to be the mercies of God. So anyway, they continue. It says, they're doing the same thing to you that they've done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Verse 9, listen to them, but you must solemnly warn them and tell them about the rights of the king who will rule over them. 10. Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. Now, pay attention to the repetition here. He said, these are the rights of the king who will rule over you. He can take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots, on his horses, or running in front of the chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties, to plow his ground or reap his harvest or make his weapons of war or the equipment for his chariots. Verse 13, he can take your daughters, perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Verse 14, he can take your best fields, your vineyards, your olive orchards, and give them to his servants. Verse 15, he can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. Verse 16, he can take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, and your donkeys and use them for his work. And verse 17, he can take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. Now, what word was repeated multiple times? Take. He will take. He will take. He will take. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your money. He will take your fields. What is the king going to do? He is going to take. Is this what you want? And the people all say, yes, give us the king. They refuse to listen to Samuel in verse 19. We must have a king over us, and then we will be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, he will go out before us, and he will fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. And Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you go back to your city. So the first thing that we have this morning is the choosing and the crowning of the king. The choosing. One of the things I want us to understand this morning is you and I struggle with the same thing. There's two phrases I want to use this morning. One is status or service. You need to think about whether you're looking for status or service. The other thing that underlines all this, underlies all this, is the cool factor. The cool factor is a a pretty important aspect of our lives. 
I remember when I was in middle school, at lunch, I was sitting at the table with a bunch of other people. I think they were mostly guys. And somehow the conversation turned to whether or not Kevin was cool. Now, you know inside, as soon as that happens, you just melt. You're like, oh, no, what are they going to say, right? And so, But I remember, I don't remember what anybody else said, but I remember this one kid. And here's, here's, here's what he said. He said, oh, Kevin's pretty cool. Like, he wears blue jeans and has Hobie shirts. Now, you don't know what those shirts are, but 20 years ago, that was the brand of cool shirts, okay? Or at least semi-cool shirts. And so I was like, oh, I'm so glad I wore that T-shirt today, you know? Um, because I wasn't completely ousted, right? I was, I was okay. You know, I wasn't the cool kid, but, you know, I wasn't completely rejected. So why do I still remember that today? Because... We're all seeking for approval. We want acceptance, okay? The cool factor. And listen, young people, I, I really, I can't stress this enough. If you're gonna chase the cool factor, it's not gonna end up good. Because the cool factor changes. Who's, who's ever heard of Hobie shirts today? They don't even sell them. They're gone. What was cool yesterday is gone and buried today. And that's the problem. King Saul was the king and head and shoulders above everybody one day, standing tall, and the next he was sitting small. Why? Because he's chasing the cool factor. He was looking for status instead of service. And that's what you have got to ask yourself. What are you looking at? Look again at the text of why Israel wanted a king. They wanted a king like the other nations. Cool factor. Yes, cool factor. We want to be cool. They got kings. Their king goes out on battle with them. He rides out in his chariot. He pulls his sword. Charge! Let's go! That's what they want. Cool factor. God says, they've rejected me, Samuel. Don't get too upset. It's me they've rejected the cool factor there's something more important guys than the cool factor as we look at the text we see that Samuel's sons they had perverted justice his, his sons were not following in the ways of God and so Samuel is going to have to appoint somebody else who's going to take over because the people don't want his sons they're corrupt remember Eli's sons were corrupt too so Eli had corrupt sons, and so he basically uh, adopts Samuel. Now Samuel's got corrupt sons, and he's basically going to adopt Saul. Now Saul's son's actually not corrupt. He's Jonathan, but there's going to be a new son that replaces him too. So there's another pattern here. The sons are moved out, and a new son is brought in or adopted in to the situation. As the elders request the king we look at this idea of the cool factor, I want you to write this down. Who do I want to be like? Who do I want to be like? Who are you, if you could be anybody, who would you want to be like? Who, who are you looking up to in life? Who is it that you look at them and you're like, man, I wish I could be them? Don't tell me nobody. Even preachers do this. Okay? Everybody tough. And we don't see who is it 
Do you like to bang off, man? Cool. Rockstar, NBA football player, millionaire, girl. What is it? Quarterback. Who do you want to be like? That's the request of the king. So the choosing, which is going to turn out to be not so well. But the people request the king. The response of God is that they've rejected him. And so if I was to tell you all the bad things that were going to happen, if you were to become like that person, some of you would still say, I, I choose this. I'll take it. That's what they did. You see, in our world, we're often the solution to everything. Everybody needs to be better educated. So why not a choice? Build the right choice. Whatever. I'm not saying educated. I'm saying education by itself is a solution. Everybody knows. That stop people from smoking them? Not if they want to smoke them. Everybody knows junk food's no good for you. Does that stop you from eating junk food? Nope. Why? Because you don't care. Because you want junk food. Everybody knows you should eat your veggies. But what's the least liked thing on your plate usually? Veggies. So the education's not going to cure it. All right? We already know more than enough. Thing is, our wanter isn't fixed. We want what we want. And the people wanted a king to go out before them. Who's been going out before them all this time? God's been going out before them. God's been fighting their battles. Who goes before them and who goes behind them? God does. Who led them out of Egypt? God did. The fire by night and the cloud by day. God. The Ark of the Covenant. God. Nope. We don't want you anymore, God. We want a human being that has a sword strapped to his side, he's got armor on, and maybe he rides a strong steed, a stallion, a horse. We don't see that with you, God. You're invisible. They reject it. In chapter 8, verse 18, that God says, You will cry, and I will not answer. Now, this is one of those verses that we read over, but really, you should start underlining asterisk it. <coughs> You will cry, and I will not answer. Contrast that with chapter 7, verse 9, when Samuel cried out, and the Lord answered. Contrast that with all through the book of Judges, when the people rebelled, but then they cried out to God. What did God do? He answered them. He sent a deliverer. And now he's telling them, this is what you want. You will cry out, and I will not answer you. I will not answer means no deliverance. No deliverance means no salvation. God's leaving them to whatever happens. In Exodus, the people cried out in slavery. And what did God do? He answered. He sent a deliverer. He raised up a Moses. And he brought him out. Further on in the story, in chapter 12, verse 12, we jump over there. At this point in time, Saul has been chosen as king. And in chapter 12, we read through the text and we see that the people have sinned and they've cried out to God. Samuel, in the first few verses of chapter 12, has demonstrated his integrity. Unlike his sons, he hasn't stolen anything. He's judged rightly. He's not been perverted in his judgments. In verse 8 it says of chapter 12, when Jacob went to Egypt, 
your ancestors cried to the Lord, and he sent them Moses and Aaron. Verse 9, but they forgot the Lord their God. So he handed them over to Sisera. Verse 10, then they cried to the Lord. He said, we've sinned. We abandoned the land as they asked us. Now deliver us from the power of our enemy. We'll serve you. Verse 11, so the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and the Samuel. Notice that Samuel is listed there. He rescued you from the power of the enemies, and you lived securely. Verse 12, but when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, you said to me, no, we must have a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God is your king. This is the difficulty of Bible interpretation. As you read stories, you've got to put the pieces together. Chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 12. What is God saying about their choosing of a king? What's he saying about when you cry out? Instead of crying out when Nahash was there, instead of crying out to God and trusting that God would send a deliverer like he did in Judges, like he did in the Exodus, instead you said, give us a king. You see it? They've rejected God. They've turned their backs on God. Instead, they want the human king. And so the response of the people to give us a king is, is a refusal to listen to Samuel. He'd warn them what this king was going to do. It's a refusal to listen to God, which is another theme throughout Samuel. Eli's sons refused to listen to him. Samuel's sons refused to listen to him. And Israel, who is God's son, refused to listen to their father, Yahweh. Do you listen to your father? Or are you like the Israelites? Do you refuse to listen? Instead of crying out to God when you're in trouble for his deliverance, you say, give me a king. Give me some other human leader that I can follow. We'll figure it out ourselves. We'll do it our way. We can figure out what's good. And he rejects God and his leadership. Refusal to listen. God was trying to teach them to trust God. All through, whether it's the Exodus or Judges, every time God came through and he delivered, it should have been another tally score for God. You cried, I delivered. You cried, I delivered. You cried, I delivered. You don't cry, I don't deliver. You trust in him, I don't deliver. You trust in him, I don't deliver. You cry to me, I deliver. It should have been obvious. We can jump ahead a couple more books in the Bible. We'll be there shortly. It's the same thing in Kings and then when the kingdom divides. No, I'm going to trust in Assyria. I'm going to trust in Babylon. I'm going to trust in Egypt. Another king from another country. What, what are you thinking? No, you trust in your creator, the one who made a covenant with you back in Genesis 12 with Abraham, that you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. That you're going to be my son and I'm going to deliver you. But no, give us a king. We want to be cool. They want to be blended rather than distinct. You know why you want to be cool? You know why I wanted to be cool? I've since learned, by the way, I'm not cool. I've never really been cool. Right? You know why you want to be cool? Because you don't want to be different. Because difference stands out. And people mock and make fun of difference. But what did God call the Israelites to be? Exactly that. He called them to be different. He said, you, of all the nations, I have chosen you, and you will be different, unique, separate, 
He used the word holy, which means set apart, different, unique, separate. What, what is God? Who is God? The word that describes God, one word, if you have it, is holy. And why is it holy? Because he is completely different than everything else. He's completely otherly. He's not like anything else or anybody else. Israel was called by God to be that. So in a sea of humanity, in a sea of nations, this one group of people was going to be different. They're going to be a light that shines because they're not the same. If you're just like everybody else, then how are you shining? You're not. You've got to be the fish going upstream, not going down with everybody else. You gotta be the firefighter that's going up the towers, not rushing out like everybody else. You gotta be the one that's different. You gotta be the one that's unique. That's what God called Israel to be. That's how God was gonna use Israel to bring a blessing to the rest of the world. Because what is God's plan? God's plan is for everyone, everywhere, every nation, people, tongue, and tribe to know God. That was the goal with the Egyptians. That's the goal later on. What is God's goal with the Assyrian kings, with the Babylonian kings, with the Persian kings? You can read it in Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar finally humbles himself and acknowledges the one true God. Mission accomplished. Why did he make him act like an animal for seven years in the wilderness? So that he would know there's only one God. And that is exactly what was accomplished in Daniel 4. What is God trying to do with his people? The same thing. What is God trying to do with you? The same thing. So that you could be in the most hard place imaginable, and you would unwaveringly trust who? Yahweh, the creator God. And people would look at you and say, are you nuts? That is not even real. Isn't that what they still say today? God's not even real, right? Some people say that. How can you trust in that? Can't you see the mess right in front of you? No, no, no. Here's what you need to do. A, B, C, one, two, three. That will help you through this. God says, no. What's really real? Your reality is not real. That's the problem with most people. What they think is real is not really real. The reality is there's a spiritual war going on. The reality is there's a creator God trying to reunite people with himself. The reality is that every person born is dropped into that story, and God is trying to get them connected to him instead of just doing their own thing on the stage of life. So as the king is chosen, King Saul, they reject God. And there's also a private coronation and a public public coronation in chapters 9 and chapters 10. So Saul's anointed by Samuel, and then after that in chapter 10, he's brought before the people, and the people acknowledge him, and they, they rise up around him, and then Saul will go and he'll fight a battle, and that will cement him as king in the people's mind. He was able to lead them in battle like they asked for, a king to lead us in battle. And the victory, I don't know what would have happened if he lost, but he had victory that day, and so it was good, and the people surrounded him with the praise. He comes from a wealthy family. He's tall. He's handsome. He's got the status thing down. He's got the cool factor down. It appears from the text he did have a little bit of humility in the beginning. He had some people that didn't like his decisions. Some of his guys were like, hey, kill him. He's like, no, no, no. Let's nobody die today. Things are going good today. Let him alone. 
He unifies the 12 tribes, and they defeat the enemy. But then it goes downhill because he begins to disobey. Alexander McLaren says, one of the first lessons which we have to learn is a wholesome disregard of other people's ways. You need to read that again probably to let it sink in. One of the first lessons which we have to learn is a wholesome disregard of other people's ways. What's every kid say to their parents when they, they come home and they're like, hey, mom, hey, dad, uh, can I go to this movie or can I go to this party or can I go here? And, and the parent says no. And then they're like, oh, but mom, what's the next word? Or everybody's going, right? Billy's going, Susie's going, everybody's going. I'll be the only one not going. It's a cool factor. We want to be included, right? Think about Jeremiah. God says, Jeremiah, you're not going to get married. I want you to preach for 40 years and no one's going to listen to you. <laughs> Some cool factor that is. We're going to throw you in a pit. We're going to throw you in a birdcage. We're going to throw you in a cistern. We're going to throw you in a prison. Yeah, we're going to beat you, mock you. So much for cool factor. If you look at who God calls in the Bible, is there usually a cool factor about him? Who's John the Baptist? Some crazy guy out in the wilderness that eats bugs. Right? Today, how would he be viewed? We'd lock him up in the mental hospital probably. Right? He's raging about God and God coming back in a judgment. Okay, he's dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts and honey. Hmm. But see, his appearance is actually supposed to remind you about Elijah in the Old Testament. Elijah. Who were they? More crazy guys. God's people that he calls out. Yeah, they're a little bit crazy. Okay, I'm not telling you to go to school on Monday and some camel's hair outfit, okay? You don't have to make yourself more crazy. If we would just live like God asked us to live, we already would be a little crazy to the world, okay? Not just crazy because you're wearing camel's hair and eating bugs and honey, all right? Which in some parts of the world, by the way, is just the norm, bugs and honey, all right? But crazy because you're radically devoted to God. What were Samuel's sons known for? They take bribes. Some of you don't think anything about bribes. What's a bribe? It's a payoff. Here, I'll give you this if you don't tell. Here, I'll do this for you. You do this for me. I had a, a principal at a Christian school say to me one time, bribes are wrong? I was a little bit dumbfounded. I'm thinking, you're principal at a Christian school. You should know bribes are wrong. It's in Proverbs. It's in Samuel. Yeah, that's leadership. Did you know in some countries... Pretty much everything is run by bribes. How do you be a Christian in a country where everything is run by bribes? I remember when um, I was a college kid, my, my first missions trip to Mexico, and uh, the police, they just stop everybody all the time. And so I'm quite certain um, the way we got through, because there was like 20 of us in the group, and so we got this vehicle, and then we got this trailer with all of our luggage in it. So every time they stop you, what they do is they unload the entire trailer. They search any bags they want. So you can imagine, I mean, it's like an hour and a half every time. So we got through one, and then there's another checkpoint, literally, in like seven minutes. And so the missionary is like, he's like, okay, I'll, I'll take care of this. I know how it works. So, yeah, that's, he brought it. 
or Tatum, whatever you want to call it, right? So how's that work? Okay. Um, we live in a world that is corrupt. And in many parts of the world, this is how the people actually, they make their money. But God says no bribes. What do you do? Well, you better wrestle through it if you're going to follow God. Right? God says don't lie. Be a person of integrity. What do you do? Little lie, big lie. No, it's just a lie. It's either the truth or it's not the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Isn't that what they make you swear in the court of law? Who's more important, the court of law or God? God. So the court of law says that if you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, God, interestingly enough, and then you lie, it's called perjury. You can go to prison. Hmm. A little more important with God, don't you think? Your words should be yes when it's yes and no when it's no, James says. That's a school, guys. That's when the teacher asked you something. That's when you took the candy and you weren't supposed to. That's when whatever. It's when you smacked your sibling and you weren't supposed to and you're asked about it. It's whatever, right? Integrity. Samuel had the integrity. His sons didn't have it. Rejection of the king is coming soon. I titled it The Collapse. So, yeah, they have the choosing and the crowning, but it doesn't last all that long because there's going to be the collapse. He might have started strong, but he didn't finish so strong. You guys that claim to have come to Christ at a young age, some of you still in uh, elementary school, middle school, how are you going to finish? You know, to some degree, it's pretty easy after you hear preaching and teaching to realize, yeah, I'm a sinner. Uh-huh. Yeah, I need Jesus. And so you pray a prayer. But does your life change? Because if your life's not changing, maybe that prayer didn't really do anything. If people call out to God, what's another word for call? Pray. God said, you'll cry to me, and I won't hear or answer. You can pray to God, and God cannot answer you know that? God knows your heart. Why is he not going to answer? Because they're playing him like a genie. That's why. He's not a genie. You don't rub my lamp and you get three wishes. That's not how it works with God. Oh, we're losing the battle. Go get the ark. Uh, no. Get your heart right. You're in sin. Saul might have unified the people together as a nation. But he didn't learn to rely upon God. We were watching a, a movie the other day, and these little, um, I don't know what they were. Lemmings? Yeah. These lemmings in this little movie, they could get run over by a bulldozer, pounded into the ground. And then they'd always say, wait for it! And boom, they'd pop back up because they couldn't kill the things, right? Yeah. Well, I tell you that just to use this phrase. So... Saul's told by Samuel, okay, all right, we're going to have a, a sacrifice. I'll be back in seven days. Wait for me. Wait. Wait for it, right? He gets impatient. If you look back at the text, you'll see that he gets impatient for the same reasons. There's a fear. The Philistines are all around. There's a fear. The army is starting to desert him. Where's my soldiers going? There's a lot of them. Where's mine going? 
how do you look in the people's eyes? Go back to the cool factor. And the fear of man. And what underlies the cool factor? Theologically, the fear of man. Why do you want to be cool? Because you're afraid of what people think. Because you're more concerned with people's approval than God's approval. Let's not pretend this is only for a certain age group. This is for every age group. Pastors do the exact same thing. You know what pastors do when they get together? They compare numbers. What kind of numbers? How many people show up at their services? How much money's in the offering? How big the, the square footage is on their buildings? Is this what every pastor does? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying this is what happens when pastors get together. What, what are they doing? That's the cool factor. Okay? It gets into everything. And God is saying, get rid of that garbage. That's not what he's about. He's about trusting me. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 talks about leaning not on your own understanding, but who? But lean on the understanding of God. Lean on the trust of God. Trust him for what he's doing. But instead, we try to wiggle our own way out. We got no idea what God's doing with our ministry right here. We're transitioning. I don't know what it's going to look like, but we're in a transition. We're, we're, we're moving to something. I don't know what. Um, we're waiting for God to help us understand what that is. I don't want to jump too soon, but we've also been waiting a long time. And so what is it that he's doing? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the last six years uh, impact was or wasn't. I don't really know. I never will probably till I'm in heaven. I might not know all of it then. Who knows? So the point is I can't figure it out. I don't know the answer. I've read books. I've been to seminars. I've been to church planning conferences. I don't know what the answers are. And so I want to obey God. I want to go where God's moving. I want to be where God's pushing me to. When the collapse comes, it comes because Saul does not listen to what God tells him to do. He told him to wait. That was just one of the things he told him. If you look at the text, there's, there's two different uh, times that Saul is rejected. Chapter 13 and chapter 15. If you flip over to chapter 13, you'll see just very briefly... It says that Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. Then it begins to tell in verse 2 how he chooses some men, chooses 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and Bethel's hill country, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah at Benjamin. So he split his troops up. He's got some, his son has some. He sent the rest away, each to his own tent. And Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison, it says in, in verse 3. It was in Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear, and all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked his Philistine garrison, and Israel is now repulsed to the Philistines. And the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines gathered to fight against Israel. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. In other words, there's tons of them. They went up and they camped at Michmash, east of beth Aven. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, thickets, among the rocks, and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but 
Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. Then the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. God's almost comical. Verse 10, just as he finished. Who shows up? Well, Samuel, of course. The one who's supposed to officiate the offering. Because Saul's a king and not a priest. Yes. He says to him, he tries to explain himself away. He says, when I saw the troops, verse 11, deserting, and you didn't come within the appointed time, and the Philistines were gathering, I thought, well, the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. In other words, we're surrounded, and I've got to go through the ritual. Forget the relationship. I need the ritual. How many times are you going through the ritual? Church is a ritual. You come to church on Sunday, every Sunday. That makes it a ritual. If you don't have a relationship, your ritual doesn't mean anything. Are you with me? If you have a relationship, well, that bleeds right through the ritual. It brings meaning to it. It brings all sorts of significance to it. But without the relationship, it's just a ritual. And it will get you nothing. Absolutely nothing. Saul gets rejected here. Verse 13, Samuel says, You've been foolish. You have not kept the commands which the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a different man who is loyal to him. You skip down to chapter 15, and you'll find that again Saul is rejected as king. Chapter 15, verse 1, The Lord sent me to appoint you as king over his people. Now listen. Remember, there's a little problem of listening, right? You got the problem, I got the problem, the Israelites got the problem, the sons don't listen to their daddies, right? Who's your daddy? So, listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. He's saying, listen, a long time ago when I set you free from Egypt, the Amalekites attacked you guys. So now I want you to go wipe them out. It's been hundreds of years, and they still have not changed their ways. They haven't repented. They haven't followed me. So go pay them a visit. It's time for them to be disciplined. Judgment has come. If you know the story at all, you know that Saul was supposed to wipe them all out. But instead he kept alive King Agag, and he kept, this is even maybe worse, he kept the best of the animals and killed the junk ones. Now God said get rid of all of them. Who does this remind you of? This reminds you maybe of Eli's sons, who took the best meat for themselves and gave the rest to God and the people. This is a violation of God's covenant laws. So what happens? Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king. He's turned away from following me. He's not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. And early in the morning he got up to confront Saul. And so he goes to see him. And Saul begs him. And Saul falls on the ground to grab at his robe, but Samuel is moving at the same time. And as he grabs the robe, it rips. And Samuel turns back to him and says, And so the kingdom has been ripped from your hands. And this is the downfall of Saul. From standing tall to sitting small. It's done. There's several more incidents that occur. Saul chases David around for a long time, but David's anointed as king. We'll talk about him next week. Saul's done. The cool factor 
It's a little bit too broad for everything that we're discussing. But when you look at your life, it's a cool factor. That's part of what did Saul in. Because underneath the cool factor is the approval of man instead of the approval of God. And Saul did not listen to God and do what he said. Saul did not listen and learn from God. Guys, you have the same exact challenge and problem, and so do I. You need to listen to God, learn from God, look to God, and stop looking at everybody else. Stop trying to be cool. It's not about being cool. It's about being faithful to God. It's about chasing Christ, not chasing cool. Cool changes tomorrow. What was cool five years ago is usually not cool today. Like, think about it. You know it's true. But guess what? Education is not going to fix your problem. So I can educate you all day long on cool. You can go watch the YouTube videos called Merchants of Cool and see how they use and abuse you. They purposely trick you. Let, let, let me just say this, okay? And then I'll try to wrap this up. You're, you're not going to believe me, probably, but there's an entire video series called Merchants of Cool. Some of it might not be appropriate for all of you. I don't know. So maybe I shouldn't have mentioned the title. But anyways, um, it's an expose, and it's a little bit old now, but it's an expose, and basically it does this. It's a cat and mouse game. You're the mouse. They put the cheese out and snap the trap. That's exactly how it works. You're nothing but a pawn to them to get your money into their pocket. That's exactly how it works. They find the person that you will listen to because you think they're cool and you want to be like them. And so they will put their clothes on that cool person because they know that you will do what that person does. It's exactly how it works. They want to sell you a candy bar. They get somebody that you think is cool, and they already know who you think is cool. They get who you think is cool to eat that candy bar on TV to tell you how awesome it is, and then you'll go buy the candy bar. If it's a $75 pair of jeans, they do the same thing. If it's a purse for the girls, Shoes for the boys, belts, hats, cars, doesn't matter what it is. You find a cool cat to wear it, and all the kids will follow. And the money goes in their pocket, and that's what they're all about, getting the money. So I can tell you that. I just educated you, but guess what? Education isn't going to solve it. It's a hard issue. you got to have a converted heart that follows after God. you got to be following after Christ instead of cool. There is a difference between having the truth and loving the truth. Let me say that again. There is a difference between having the truth. I just gave you the truth about the cool factor. But there's a difference between having the truth and loving the truth. Do you love the truth? When you fall in love with Jesus, I don't like saying that, the fall in love thing, but you get what I'm saying. When you fall in love with Jesus, when you chase after Christ instead of cool, then his word becomes important to you. What he says becomes important to you. And you're not chasing cool. You're chasing Christ. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, let me just read again what it says. Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. He doesn't want your ritual. He wants your relationship. Okay? Relationship. You want status or service? Serving the Lord's army, you submit and surrender. The Burlberg Bible from a long time ago, 1700s, you've probably never heard of it, translated it like this. In sacrifices, a man offers only the strange flesh of irrational animals, whereas in obedience, he offers his own will. 
which is relational or spiritual worship. His will. I call that your wanter with Cooper all the time. Okay? He wants your wanter. Okay? He doesn't want your sacrifices of, of animals. He doesn't want your rituals. He wants your wanter. When God gets your wanter, he'll get everything else. He wants your wanter. Saul missed it. The question is, are you going to miss it? You've got to make that choice. I can't make it for you. You're going to chase cool, or are you going to chase Christ? Let's pray. Father, this morning we've seen from your word the devastation and the rejection that happens when we chase after cool instead of Christ. I pray, God, that you would help us to be people that would completely surrender ourselves inside, our hearts, our wills, God, that we would chase after you, that we would desire Christ more than cool, that we would desire the approval of God more than the approval of man. So God, I pray this morning that if there's any person, any, anybody, boy, girl, man, woman in this room who does not know for sure they have that relationship with you, that has not had their heart changed from chasing after cool to chasing after Christ, that this morning they would be convicted and converted, Lord, that you would change them. If you're, if you're listening to me this morning and you're not sure what that looks like or, or how you do that, it's this simple, really. It's realizing the truth of the Scripture and putting it into practice. And how you put it into practice is this. You mean it, you cry out to God, because when you mean it and you cry out to God, God hears and he answers. And so right where you're sitting, you can cry out to God, just like the Israelites did. And if you mean this and you're serious, he'll hear you and he'll answer. So you cry out to God right there and you say something like this. You say, God, I realize I've been chasing cool. I've not been chasing Christ. I know that I need you. I know it in my head. But I need to know it in my heart. I need my wanter fixed. God, forgive me. Forgive me for chasing after cool. Forgive me for chasing after what I want. Take that away from me. I know that you came, Jesus, and you died on the cross. Because of that, you died to take away my sins. I'm asking you to save me today. Change my wanter. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my King. Help me to ch stop chasing after cool and just follow after Christ. Make me part of your family. Show me how to have that deep, intimate relationship with you. And don't let this just be ritual in my life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With your heads bowed still, eyes closed, you're always looking around, but you're just listening and you're praying with God. Listen, if you meant that, you really cried out to God with all your heart, he heard and he answered. The Spirit of God comes upon you like it came upon Saul in the moment, and you become a follower of God, part of his family. Now listen to what he says to you. Don't be a rebellious son. Learn and listen and obey. And dear Christian, we have an obligation, a responsibility to obey the spirit, not the flesh. To listen and learn from Christ, not the culture and the cool factor. Let's be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.